Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Missing Stone podcast. I'm your host, Sean Sullivan. Each week, we speak with conservationists about the moment that led them to pursue their career, the path they've taken, and deep dive into the work they're doing today. This week, I got to speak with PhD candidate and my good friend, Brian Shu. We met at 13 volunteering at the Santa Barbara Zoo, and it was really exciting to take the time to ask Brian about his relentless pursuit of his dream to study cheetahs, and then dive into his research about human-wildlife conflict, exploring what life is like living alongside big cats. This was both of our first times creating a podcast, so I hope you stick with me through this journey as I grow as a podcast host. All right, everybody, and welcome back to The Missing Stone. This is our first episode, and I am super excited to introduce our guest, cheetah biologist and PhD candidate, at the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Dr. Adrian Treves's Carnivore Coexistence Lab and working with the Mara Predator Conservation Program in the Masa Mara. But most importantly, my close friend, Brian Shu. How's it going, Brian? Hey there, Sean. Nice to, have, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How's everything going? How's your uh, research going right now? Oh, uh, you know, uh, typical PhD stuff. You're kind uh, of sit on a computer and, and write about stuff uh, that you may or may not keep every day. <laughs> and sooner or later, it gets done. And you know, uh, a lot of the uh, office work that that's the unglamorous part of PhDs research, but definitely got to be done. Yeah. So, uh, what purpose or passion are you keeping then to keep you motivated? Because it sounds like you're just inside writing every day. That's the hardest part of our job. So what are you holding on to to keep you through that? Absolutely. I, I feel like we all go into these these jobs hoping that we don't sit inside on a computer for hours at a time. Uh, and then that's what you end up doing for most of the time. So, you know, it's one of those things that you you have to just uh, find whatever you're passionate about and, and, and kind of focus on that. Uh, so being passionate about uh, conservation, uh, big cats, uh, cheetahs in, in general is something that I've always been there. I've always been passionate about and it's just kind of that motivation that uh, i am helping somewhere down the line sometime sooner or later this research will come out i will be able to go back and see cheetahs in the wild and, and hopefully uh hopefully what i'm doing you know kind of has a positive effect on, on cheetahs and people but so is it always cheetahs that you are focused on or what got you first into it what moment what species what drew you to this field well as you know uh it's cheetahs have always been something that have been uh, really special to me, something that I've been very passionate about. Uh, big cats in general, so something really cool. Uh, but it was always kind of a kind of like one of those pipe dreams that I almost thought I'd never kind of get into. Um, I worked with you know a lot of reptiles and uh, other other animals, um, whale sharks, uh, tree kangaroos, a whole bunch of things uh, kind of throughout my my career, my education, um, and then kind of in my masters, uh, I kind of. I kind of got lucky and started got connected with an organization uh, the modern predator conservation program in kenya for my masters and it kind of allowed me to to um open that door for the big cats in the cheetah world so um part of its luck part of it's just kind of you keep searching for those opportunities um but cheetahs have always been something i wanted to work with not necessarily something i always expected to be able to work with. so i'm very fortunate about that so were they your first species then or what was that first moment more so that you were like, this is the field I want to go into. Uh, uh, I couldn't tell you the first moment. It's been something that's uh, 
lived about for me my entire life. Um, you could have asked my my parents when I was like a kid, and I would bring them buckets of cockroaches or something with <laughs> with just anything with wildlife and animals. Uh, so I don't know when that first moment happened. I do remember like events in my life that made that uh, kind of uh, come to fruition. Just watching uh, Steve Irwin was a big uh, part of my life, part of my childhood. Watching him on TV, just wanted to go out and did what he did, see see the animals, and wildlife uh, that he did, and that was really cool. Kind of share that experience. Um, I also remember a, a moment in junior high when I learned about the field of zoology. Never heard about it before. Didn't know that was really a thing that you could do. Uh, in one of those science classes, I remember my teacher like mentioning zoology, kind of learning about that for the first time. I'm probably going home with my parents that day and be like, yep, that's what I'm doing. And you have no say in that. So <laughs> I was the same age. I was middle school and uh, a family friend was like, oh, you like wolves? Well, uh, you can study them professionally. That could be your job. You could be a zoologist. But for me, wolves lived in too cold a place. So I chose uh, African wild dogs, as you know. <laughs> But I feel like that's an age range where we're all super really ready to get into this field, but just start to learn about it. Yeah, I think that's, you know, when you start to learn about those things, I mean, people, I feel fortunate that I I knew what I wanted to do um, from an early age and kind of just kind of follow that passion early on. So, so many people don't get that. Um, kind of still questioning it throughout their life or something. So very fortunate and passionate about that. Yeah. And speaking of being fortunate to even learn about it, both of us were super lucky. We met at the Santa Barbara Zoo volunteering there, and we got to both help on actual current conservation projects and help with public education. How did those early experiences shape what you wanted to do in this field? That's a good question. Um, I don't think I knew exactly what was happening, uh, kind of when those things were happening. Uh, I was really enjoying what was going on. Um, I remember us going, you know, out to the Channel Islands to to do some um, invasive species work with plants and having Channel Island foxes wander around. Uh, you know, working with uh, the California condors and going up and kind of just seeing them. We weren't really working with a lot of the species that I would um, really wanted to like directly with them. We were kind of doing that indirect uh, conservation help, uh, whether it be trail management, you know, invasive species management stuff. Uh, but it did kind of show me that, hey, this is possible. This is something that there are programs going on, kind of working with. Um, I enjoyed being out in the field and seeing those, um, just seeing channel foxes or California condors, you know, and growing up some of the most endangered species in the world. Uh, it was super, super special experience. Uh, something that you never forget, kind of want to continue with that. Um, so it was definitely, I think, just an intro to the field for me, not necessarily an intro to the actual uh, conservation and practical conservation stuff. Yeah. Definitely. Now, did, because you do a lot of work with human carnivore conflict now, uh, did that early work? actually educating zoo guests getting to see what other people thought of conservation and kind of having to learn how to spread that message did that impact how you approached this field or uh was it kind of just something that you just took as it came got the experience and really understood it more later yeah 
Well, I think one thing is that learning how um, to talk to people is super important in conservation. And not just to talk to people, but understand what they're going through. How, what are their perspectives? What things that do they understand about wildlife or are they looking at wildlife that uh, you might not? Because I'm coming at it from the point of view that's like, I love this animal. I want to save it. I want to do that. A lot of people don't have that, um, that same experience. You know, they're, they're either affected by it negatively. Um, it could be affecting their livelihood socially, economically, a whole bunch of different uh, different facets. Um, and so I do think that kind of working with kids, working with the public at the zoo, they kind of introduced me to that um, that dynamic of how to talk to people, how to um, kind of approach people about wildlife in a way that's um, kind of educational and trying to coax out a passion um, in them to try to kind of show how they can be really cool and try to understand how that can, can, that can work. Uh, but it also made me realize that not everybody is super interested in that. <laughs> kind of, you know, how to deal with people that, that aren't necessarily super interested or like super scared of snakes when you're like holding a big snake and have people come out. How do you approach that? How do you approach someone that um, just doesn't really have any interest in it? And this, so yeah, those early things that help. I can remember a couple early arguments you had with zoo guests before you realized uh, maybe that's not the best approach. <laughs> I think I blacked those memories out, but uh, <laughs> but hopefully the the message uh, what I what I, I still learned from it. You know, so hopefully that doesn't happen nowadays. So having all this experience that we had in junior high high school we both knew what we wanted to do but what misconceptions did you have about the field of conservation or zoology uh before you went into college or even into the field <laughs> well i think the biggest one is that uh you go into the field any, any conservation wildlife you want to work with animals and you go into this field it's animals 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 that's what i want to do right and then you end up sitting on a computer all day I do most days, or you, the vast majority of your work ends up working with people. Um, and that's something that you just kind of don't don't see or don't or don't want to see as a kid, you know, you go into the field um, from a different perspective. Um, so I think that's a, a very big misconception that uh, when we work with um, whatever species we're working with, I work with cheetahs most of the time. I'm rarely out in the field with cheetahs. You know, I'm doing other stuff. I'm working with uh, community teams. I'm working with uh, research teams in the field or in uh, at field sites. I'm doing other things that uh, tend to be working with people, working with uh, other organizations that you can kind of collaborate with on, on different projects uh, for different species. And so you you end up not really being with the animals all the time, but it is something that uh, you still are passionate about. It's kind of still it's still the draw. It still keeps you moving. How'd you come to terms with that? I know it took me a really long time. I always just for years assumed that eventually I'd fall into that dream role that it just <laughs> had to happen. How'd you kind of come to terms with the fact that you have to shape your role a bit and uh, that it's not always going to be that perfect ideal role? Yeah, well, so a few things about that is um, when I when I was able to structure my own PhD and my own PhD research, I was really lucky in the fact that I was I was able to kind of develop my own research goals, um, ideas, um, so I could I could kind of fit what I wanted to do. So a lot of my PhD, like the summer I was my field seasons, I was with cheetahs a lot, and I kind of designed part of my research goals in order to to be with cheetahs to study cheetah behavior, something I was really interested in. Um, but as I was growing, as you kind of go through education and go through these uh, processes, um, if what you want to do is really help conservation 
I think that sooner or later you you come to the realization that it's not really about the animals as much as it is about the people. And so while I have a passion to to protect animals, to help um, conserve wildlife, uh, conserve big cats, um, it's not something that, um, sorry, I got a phone call. <laughs> um, it's something that you have to kind of reevaluate on how you approach your goals, right? So I'm trying to come into a conservation point of view. Um, how can I help the most in this? And realize that sometimes helping the most is not um, working with the animals directly. Sometimes it is. There are fields where that and areas where that is really necessary. A lot sometimes uh, it's not necessarily working with that. And you have to have almost like a delayed gratification. Be like, my work here, something else is going to is going to be really helpful. Um, to those animals, to those wildlife, uh, and to the people that live with them, um, kind of later down. The so, with all the misconceptions that we ended up having going into this field, do you still think there's a lot of value to those early career opportunities, those mid middle school, high school opportunities? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I you, like I said, sometimes those misconceptions aren't necessarily for for every field. Um, so, depending on where you're going. Um, those can have uh, drastically different um, kind of implications in, on what you're doing. Uh, we were working in a zoo for a long time. We worked, uh, kind of did some field field work as well. Uh, if, if your goal is to go, you know, to be a zookeeper or to be conservation, um, to help with conservation and maybe breeding programs or maybe vet work or maybe something that where you are more hands-on with wildlife, uh, with animals every day, uh, they might have gotten something completely different out of what we did, um, but I still think those are valuable uh, kind of opportunities. Um, and I think that they're some of the best things where where kids can um, kind of apply themselves to conservation early on, uh, because it's just something easy to do in your own community. You can go work with uh, a zoo, an organization that kind of does those programs. Um, so it's a really good opportunity to kind of just throw yourself into those as kids. Yeah. Definitely. So as you mentioned, the experiences we got there, we weren't necessarily working directly with those species a lot of times. So uh, what was it like stepping onto your first field site when you actually were working with a species for several weeks and getting that interaction and seeing that research? What what was that experience like? Feeling Did it feel like you made it? Yeah. So I've had a bunch of different field experiences. Um, the first like true field experience with with wildlife uh, was actually when I was studying abroad in outside of Cairns, uh, Australia. Um, I was working with tree kangaroos, uh, and it was one of these things where we were trying to uh, we were we were trying to learn how to rehabilitate orphan tree kangaroos, um, which is actually fairly more difficult. Seems seems like it should be simpler. Kangaroos just kind of hop around like deer, but tree kangaroos are a little bit more complicated. They they actually have to. Um, they're, they live in trees. They have to learn how to climb. They have to learn which, uh, which, which things to eat, how, how to kind of get around. Um, it's a bunch more complex environment. Um, and so we were actually working with directly with an, an orphan kangaroo. Um, and we were essentially watching and learning how it learned how to deal with a natural environment, having not grown up in one, having grown up, you know, around people. Uh, and that was something that I was, I, I found just it was so much fun because what i would do was sit in the forest and watch a kangaroo all day and kind of like a monkey you know climb around trees and kind of do that and you start taking notes on it what i found really fun like gratifying in that is when you actually st do start to like take all these notes learn all this information 
um, essentially take data in the field and come back and kind of start to see some results on like this actually has we can actually see kind of what is going on what's what's happening uh, so I found that really gratifying and it was really fun um, and it definitely only made me want to do it more be in the field more often so that's uh yeah I think that was kind of the first one it was pretty short it was only like maybe a few weeks or, or a month maybe working with them but um, yeah it was a good time so that's always exciting so were you able to ever go back and see where your research or read about where your research ultimately ended up leading to? I don't think that one has any um, publications or anything. So unfortunately, I don't ha- I don't know much more about that. Um, I've never gone back to Australia since then. Actually, um, my my research goals kind of took a, a different turn um, as I went into my uh, further into education. So uh, no, I haven't been back with that. Um, I would love to. It'd be kind of kind of interesting to see what happens and. Um, that's still a thing. I have no idea if there's even a program for that stuff anymore. So, um, yeah, kind of cool. I feel the same way where my first research ever in the field was doing uh, behavioral studies on African wild dogs, trying to see which ones would be best to release back into the wild, Mm -hmm. uh, at a national park in Africa and, uh, what behaviors would be necessary. And the program just completely died out. There's no results from it. There's no info from it. Yeah. It took a very steep dive. Uh, probably wasn't the best intro to field work, but, uh, (laughs) you know, that's another issue we face in this field, but, uh, ultimately it's one of those where we always want to see those results and it's frustrating when we can't, but when you are that person out working in the field and somebody says, Hey, take your free time and uh, publish this for us. That's also pretty, <laughs> pretty rough. So it's a tough balance yeah. in this field to make sure that you're able to get that information out versus how much time you're actually working on the study. Yeah. I mean, getting the information out as I'm sure maybe you, you have some experience with that is, is not always the, the only thing, you know, that's important uh, as someone in the field you're gaining you're gaining experience you're gaining connections you're meeting people um you're learning about uh different things different different experiences um so just because you don't see a you know a a tangible result sometimes doesn't mean that it didn't have a result um but you do you do when you do work like with that i definitely want to see something kind of come out of it Um, definitely more gratifying in the end but yeah it's definitely interesting i mean it's why there's so many people out there who are become more writers than anything else in this field, uh, if that's what you value the most. But I do want to move into, because when we were emailing ahead of time, you mentioned that the most impactful arc in your career was your master's research and or the project you worked on for your Mm -hmm. master's. So the first thing I really want to start with is a lot of us in this field have different intentions on where we want to end up going uh and a lot try to go straight into phd if they think research is their goal would you be where you are today without your masters <laughs> definitely not and i'm probably one of the uh the first the first kind of cohort of of people um that didn't do a research masters and kind of continue to a, a research phd so my masters was actually a professional program in environmental um, conservation um, where it was structured in order to kind of teach students how to uh, 
be a part of an organization or a government agency and kind of be a part of the structure that can help a conservation or any environmental aspect uh, uh, solution uh, kind of kind of find those solutions in, in in any form. But we weren't really working with research. We were essentially partnering with the organization, learning how they ran, learning how um, to meet people, maybe how to partner with other organizations and how to kind of uh, manage an organization in order to have a, an outcome that you wanted. Um, so it was really interesting for me to do that and then jump into a research PhD uh, directly after, um, which is something that not many people do. Um, so it's a very unique uh, path. and in this field for sure. So what skill development from there then let you pursue your PhD the way you are the most? I guess I know there's a lot of skills, a lot of a lot of things we learn when we're in those programs, but what was that key development that allowed you to continue to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, so the biggest thing for me uh when I got my project for my masters, which was in which with the Mar Project Conservation Program as well. Um I got there expecting to have a kind of defined project for me. You know, management there was supposed to kind of develop a project, have a student come in, kind of kind of go through the process and create some deliverables at the end that they can present to their communities or, or the organization themselves where they can um, then hopefully make a difference kind of in the community. I got there and there was nothing. Most of the people didn't even know I was coming. <laughs> so it showed up and people were, you know, most of the people there were like, who's this? you know, white kid from America that doesn't know what he's he's doing in Africa. Um, And that's fair. And so the biggest thing I learned out of that um, is working with this organization is learning how to, um, to build relationships, to learn how to manage and um, move your relationships with, with people and organizations and how to kind of make the best of a a really kind of shitty situation that you don't know what's going to happen. Um, and I think that's really important in conservation field, actually, in probably any field, probably extrapolate out. I don't have much experience in the other ones, but um, to to be really flexible in how to achieve your goals, because you're going to walk into something and it's not going to work. You're going to go somewhere and someone else is going to have some other idea and you're going to have to change drastically. And you're not just going to have to deal with how that um, changes in your mind, how you um, change that mentally. But you're gonna have to deal with how to um, be a part of a whole group of people, how to deal with other people, how to manage other people, how to manage relationships. That's all something that's gonna be you need to be flexible with in order to kind of achieve your goals, or else it's gonna be really hard. And not that it isn't hard when that happens, but it's something that you need to kind of learn and, and be a part of. Yeah. So, what was the craziest change you had to adapt to? Well, I mean, for me walking into that walking into a new environment in the middle of the Masai Mara Kenya which I've never been to uh I was supposed to stay for 3 months and I walked in and kind of the the manager there that I was supposed to work with that ran, that runs the conservation team um he literally looked at me like who are you and what are you why are you here um and so for me that was the just it was a struggle kind of throughout because it was um I, w- I was kind of stuck in, in a situation where s- certain parts of the management knew I was coming and parts that I actually were supposed to work with had no idea that I was even going to be there. And so I had to kind of come up with my own strategy, my own kind of program, my own ideas on how I could help that organization. And then you have to make them happen too. You only have three months or something. So you have to 
essentially try to prove your worth. Why are you there? What's going on? Is it going to be worth it for you and the organization? So it's something that, um, yeah, it was a, it was a process. <laughs> I don't think it was a single day or a single thing that was like, uh, that's what the struggle was, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a longer term uh, process, but. So who had you been communicating with ahead of time? Um, I was communicating with a new manager who was um, kind of in and out. Um, we don't need to <laughs> go into yeah. the anything. Yeah, so no, fair. definitely. Uh, essentially, what was happening was uh, there was new management coming in. The new management kind of knew what I was doing. The people that were had already there, um, there wasn't communication within the organization on what was happening. Um, and so when I got there, the, the people that I was actually going to try to work with, the carnivore team, uh, didn't really know what, didn't know I was going to come at all. So um, something you learn about, I was a student back then, but if I was kind of part of a part of an organization or management now, uh, you learn that communication is probably one of the most important things you're ever going to you know do. Communication between people, between organizations, um, or else you end up with situations that people just don't know what they're doing, and <laughs> it's, a, it's a drain on resources for everybody, you know, mentally. Oh, definitely. And that's who you're still working with today, right? Correct. Yep. So I, so one of the reasons, you know, I was, I, I feel like I was very successful in that for my master's where I created some really, um, really good relationships um, with that organization and, and kind of on my way out of my master's degree. Um, when I was leaving Kenya, uh, they offered, you know, if I wanted to do research, they offered, if they, I could come back and kind of do a PhD with them. Um uh, which was super nice of them. They didn't have to do that. So again, very lucky in that situation. Uh, yeah, and I appreciate them uh, to this day. I mean, I wouldn't be be here where I am without them. So it's very nice. That's awesome. So then as we transition more into your current research that you're working on today, the last thing I really want to ask is, uh, how has your purpose in this field changed from when you were a kid, when you learned first about conservation and went, that's what I'm going to do and what you hold on to now as you're sitting there writing your PhD, as we discussed at the beginning? Yeah, purpose is something that uh, I think everybody probably struggles with constantly um, in this field. It, it changes constantly uh, and it changes for every situation. Uh, so my purpose working with you know, uh, wolves or pumas maybe in my backyard here in the U.S. might be very different because I'm I'm part of this culture. I'm from here. I'm maybe I'm part of the community. My purpose when I go to Africa and I work with with partners and organizations over there might be completely different. Um, so so like in this case, I'm not part of a as welcoming as they are, and they've been uh, it's awesome to go visit friends and stuff in in the Mara. Uh, I'm not really part of that culture, right? I didn't grow up there. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not Kenyan. Um, so when I, when I go back, I, I kind of view my purpose as, can I come in? What are your goals as an organization, as an organization there? And can I, can my expertise kind of help you achieve those goals? And, and how can we kind of partner with that um, in order for you to do that? And if the answer is yes, and we kind of can come up with a really good constructive plan where, you know, there's something I can do either research wise or funding wise or something that I can kind of help support them in that case, um, then that's my, then I would say that's my purpose in those situations. Um, but you know, those situations change um, everywhere you go, depending on your relationships, your community, your, um, and, and your expertise. So I think that that's a hard thing to, to nail down, you have to kind of just uh, figure it out as you go <laughs> one thing at a time. 
Definitely. So do you ever feel conflicted then when you're, especially when you're making like a suggestion for a government that's a foreign government, one that's not something in your backyard or even going across the world to work with an organization where there's probably people there who would dream to have that position. Is there any conflict you ever feel internally there? Absolutely. Yeah, you do that. You do all the time. And I think that's why one of the things that I always think about is when I'm going someplace is um, I need to have a conversation of how can I help? And how can I help the local people, um, the local group organization achieve what they're trying to achieve? And that's very different from what I think I would want to achieve, right? So I want to go save cheetahs. It's something that I've always wanted to do. But if I go into an organization or a place um, that's working with cheetahs or that has cheetahs, and that's not their goal, I don't know if I have the right to just come and say, hey, now we need to save cheetahs, right? Um, but if I see an organization that maybe is that kind of aligns with those with those ideas and with kind of uh, my goals, then maybe I can go in and say, hey, how can I help in this situation? How can I help you achieve your goals in that situation? Um, and how can we partner to do that? Um, and like when you're making recommendations, I think in a lot of those cases, it's you have to kind of uh, back up and try to understand what they want first. So I um, actually, there was a professor in, that I met in the MAR one time that uh, kind of told me or had this one question first when we were having a, a stakeholders meeting with landowners and stuff in the MARA. And his first question was, you guys have to decide what you want as a concert, as conservationists. What is your, what are your goals? And then once you have those goals, maybe we can come in and help recommend stuff in order for you to achieve those goals. What can, what can help you get there? But just coming in and recommending random things isn't really going to help because that might not be, that might be counterintuitive to whatever goal that they're trying to set. And that might be different than the goal that I want for them to have, which is not really a, right for me to tell them what goals they should have so i mean both of us like so many kids going into this field had an international dream uh thought of conservation on an international level and yes we knew what it was in our own backyard but that wasn't what drew us here so what would you then want to share with those people going into conservation would you want to give them advice to stay more local or how would you tell them to navigate those issues Oh, I think follow your passion. If you want to go international, do it. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of resources and things that that I think that we can we can help help with um, working international. Um, so I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I do think you might have to adjust how you picture yourself in the field, how you picture your role in the field, um, especially in certain situations, um, just because you aren't part of a community that is necessarily living there. And now you can go move there and maybe build yourself into a part of a, into the community. And maybe, you know, you gain trust over time and then people will kind of uh, view you as part of that community and, and you kind of change that. So that's what you want to do too. Go for it. Um, but I think that that's a, I think you have to kind of just play those things by ear, learn, learn your connections with people um, and understand kind of where, where your expert expertise fits in into whatever field, um, whatever situation that you're working in. So again, it comes down to flexibility and kind of yourself, but it's one of those, it's, it's one of those challenges for, for international work as well, for sure. So as you approach that and you got this opportunity to work internationally and, uh, 
get to almost decide what your PhD was. What was your initial big question? What was that main purpose that you first set out? Maybe not what your PhD became, but what was it that you first set out to achieve? Yeah. So like my biggest, let's see, it's a long time ago now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My biggest thing was we, we understand um, that carnivores and people interact and they have negative interactions, especially with around livestock, carnivores killing livestock all the time. Um, and there was a lot of people that were trying to mitigate this conflict and uh, to promote coexistence between the two using all these different strategies, whether it's you know a lot non-lethal deterrence, whether it's uh, protected land where people aren't allowed. Um, and in a lot of these cases, like in Africa in the past, they literally pushed people out of these lands um, in order to have protected areas, which is not necessarily, it's definitely not good now. Um, and I, I just kind of saw this conflict uh, on land use with people and carnivores. And I really was just hoping in, to kind of find a new way to to picture land use in a way that can be utilized by both people and carnivores. And a lot of people kind of probably say the exact same thing. That's not an uncommon um, thing in this field. But what I recognized was that we see carnivores um, attacking livestock or um, threatening people um, even. And no one had really understood exactly how carnivores are behaving around those domestic animals or people. Um, Instead, all we were looking at was the result of that behavior. A carnivore killed a cow. A, a carnivore uh, attacked somebody. Right? We were looking at the result. How do we stop those results? So, I, what I wanted to do was take a step back and understand how carnivores actually behave during interactions with those, and why maybe, and to try to understand why we might be having conflict in the first place. And if we take that step back, then my my idea was, if we learn that, then we might be able to have better mitigation strategies. Um, that kind of stop those behaviors in the first place, stop those negative behaviors. So before I dive a little more into uh, kind of that research, where was it that you wanted to approach in terms of for a lot of these areas that you're going into, the people living there might view carnivores or even wildlife as an antithesis to how they make money, that their economy depends on whether it's killing carnivores or removing wildlife. So how did you approach those conversations with people living in communities that really have a a livelihood that is kind of in their minds an antithesis to this mm-hmm. so i'm i work in a very unique um kind of place in the world actually in in this case uh the maasai culture is very uh revolves heavily around livestock especially cows um revered culturally uh socially um and so as you can imagine if they if they lose cows to especially lions hyenas leopards even cheetahs um that's something that they <laughs> tend not to like very much um understandably but in this in the mara we have also seen 
a growth in tourism. There's a huge tourism industry. We've seen a lot of private landowners actually give up their land um, in order to have tourists come in. And now they get essentially lease payments from tourist companies in order to use their land for wildlife tourism. And so a lot of where I work, a lot of these people see a lot of economic income from animals, from carnivores, elephants, also a whole bunch of you know safari animals. They kind of see that economic income coming from that as well. And so it is something that I actually um, kind of used as um, and still use as something that seems like it's working because there's a lot of carnivores in these areas and people are living with them fairly well. There's still conflict. <laughs> there's always going to be conflict. Um, but they're living with them fairly well. And I almost kind of, when I started to understand this during my master's and kind of see it, it was kind of one of those situations like, this is working really well. Why is this one working so well when other places maybe aren't working quite as well? What is going on? Can we understand a little bit more about the dynamics between the people, the animals, um, and the culture um, that allow that allow that to work so well in that area? So how did you choose to first go in and study this in terms of what methods and what questions were you asking to really dive in? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing for me, so for what I, I was hoping to do for kind of two things, um, uh, it's very, my research is very interdisciplinary. So I, I kind of took a, a two, two approaches, right? One was we're going to learn about more about carnivore behavior. Why, how are carnivores behaving around people, domestic animals, and so on, and everything else in that area? Where, so we can kind of learn about that mitigate problems where they occur after we learn more about that. The second approach was we need to learn more about the community. How are the community, how are members in the community kind of perceiving carnivores? Um, are they perceiving them as positives or as negatives? Do they perceive them as um, economic um, um, positives and negatives? Are they losing money? Are they gaining money from carnivores? Do they think that carnivores are causing a lot of conflict? Are they killing a lot of cows? Are they not? What, what are their perspectives on that? And then we can kind of uh, kind of use that knowledge in order to kind of target strategies, education, uh, mitigation strategies as well um, to reduce uh, like livestock losses. We see someone losing a lot of, of cattle or something. Um, but my goal there was to kind of understand both from the community side and the carnivore side and kind of really use both of those in order to kind of come up with a strategies where we can kind of mitigate problems, uh, kind of promote coexistence from, from both sides. So you mentioned that the economy where you're studying actually does rely on wildlife and predators to Mm -hmm. a certain extent. So do you feel like that's going to skew your data at all? Or do you view that as a positive in terms of some way you can help then implement that in other places? Right. So the way I designed kind of, I did a, a community survey in that sense. Uh, we want to understand how community members are viewing carnivores as a whole. First off, mm-hmm. especially different carnivores. So do they like cheetahs more than lions? Do they like lions more than leopards, more than spotted hyenas? That can allow us to kind of target strategies um, to ones that they don't like or ones that are causing uh, more problems. But we also ask specific questions about kind of each one of those to try to understand kind of why, 
why are they liking one more than the other? What's the differences, right? So we ask questions about, uh, do they see cheetahs as being a positive economic influence? Are they, do they see them being a uh, part of the tourism industry? Do they see lions as part of the tourism industry? Do they see hyenas? And we ask them to kind of like respond to that on a scale of like strongly disagree to agree um, or to strongly agree to kind of see how those, how it really compares, how they're seeing each one of those carnivores uh, across the board and are one of them causing a lot of problems or one of them, do they see some of them as really big influence to tourism and not others? So we think of uh, like wildlife tourism in Africa. We want to go see a cat, right? Lions, leopards, cheetahs. Um, and what we see a lot of times is that then hyenas kind of just get thrown off to the side. Quite a few people actually see those as also, um, you know, important parts of the tourism industry. And so a lot less people do for sure, <laughs> but quite a few people do. So we still, we still see those. Uh, we like to see kind of where those stand in the community. We can go in and then kind of, teach people like teach people hey people really do love to see spotted hyenas so they are a part of this and if not maybe we try to make that a little bit more uh, prevalent in in our outreach programs or something so you mentioned that hyenas are kind of it seems like the most hated carnivore if you will i know that's some pretty strong language but uh what is it about them that the locals dislike the most so i would say that they have the people have the least positive perceptions towards them (laughs) <laughs> spin a little bit on the positive side um well a lot of it is is mostly because there's more of them first of all um and they tend to be fairly aggressive when it comes to uh killing livestock um they're efficient at it um and they do it quite often they're a little bit harder to stop sometimes and they'll kind of get into some um especially the the traditional um like bomas where they keep cattle um in a lot of Africa, it's just essentially thorny piles of, of brush. Um, hyenas can kind of get into those. So do lions and leopards and stuff, too. So we see a lot of, uh, there's a lot of uh, that as well. But hyenas kind of always um, kind of had that negative connotation on them uh, as being a little bit more, a little bit more vicious, a little bit more um, just just not as cute. You know, there, there's a number of things that kind of go into it. One thing that a lot of people just don't understand, just don't realize. Um, a lot of times is that we think of like losing cattle or losing livestock as like an economic uh, burden on somebody. And it for sure is a hundred percent one, one aspect of a very uh, complex problem. But a lot of the time, especially in like Masai Mara uh, in Kenya, uh, but even in the U S all over the world, uh, People, people have an emotional connection to their livestock, to their cattle, to sheep and goats as well. And so when they see, you know, carnivores kind of killing it, that, that's an emotional, uh, that's, that makes them sad, that makes them angry. It's, it's almost like losing a pet, you know, sometimes uh, to a lot of people. And hyenas tend not to be very um, clean at killing animals. Um, they, are, they are known to just start eating before um, kind, of, kind of actually making sure anything's dead. So... Um, the same thing happens with wolves and African wild dogs. We see these um, these animals that tend to just kind of start ripping into animals uh, before they're dead. And I don't know if this is true. I have no evidence, but it does make me think that that might have a um, a stronger like emotional reaction um, from people when you see you know a cow when you see a, a cheetah go and, and kill a sheep and it 
bites it on the neck, it's dead. At least it, it died quickly. It's not a good thing. I'm not condoning that, but it died quickly. Then you see a one of your cows like walking back to the herd with intestines and stuff like dangling out because a hyena ripped a hole in its side. You're gonna be a whole bit more mad or sad, or you know that that's a much more emotional response to that. So I, I think a lot of those things play into play into how how the perceptions are perceived um, for for a lot of different carnivores. Definitely. So then what development have you been most excited as you're uh, approaching this research? What's kind of been the biggest step forward you've had? Like personally or research wise? Either. (laughs) I think for me, I mean, personally, for me, doing a research PhD is, is huge, huge undertaking. I mean, that's a, it's not a simple process. Um, and I had never really done a full research project before. My master's was not a research master's. Um, so just kind of learning how to develop methods, learning how to kind of how that process works um, was a huge challenge for me, but um, a rewarding challenge at the same time. It's kind of hard to see um, how it's going to affect kind of a conservation world as you kind of you know, as your research kind of goes, um, you hope it has a huge effect on it. Obviously everyone does the hope. Um, but it's kind of one of those things that you kind of, kind of want to see how it, how it plays out. So development on the, in the conservation world, um, I would say hopefully my research at least kind of provides some new information about, about what we're doing, how we can kind of approach, uh, conservation with, with carnivores, um, and maybe that maybe it'll help and maybe we need a lot more research <laughs> but probably the latter <laughs> so having half your research be more on the social science side of it all what complications did you have to face in kind of coming up with your questions to make sure that you weren't going to get biased answers or would be able to identify something biased and be able to remove that well, when you're coming up with a survey, I think you uh, you sooner or later realize that you're never going to get rid of all of it. So there's always going to be some. Um, we we took a number of steps though to kind of reduce um, bias in a lot of ways. Um, uh, the Marpreda Conservation Program has uh, hired local community members uh, as their line ambassadors to uh, talk with local with the community members um, about carnivores, about livestock, you know, predation, uh, when conflict happens, what happens. Um, so we actually used those, um, the line of ambassadors that they had already hired in order to conduct our survey, which is could is really cool because it's no longer me, a foreign guy coming in that's asking certain questions, uh, when, and they might think that we see this a lot where it's like, they might think that I'm asking, they want a specific answer, right? So they might skew their answer towards me. So hopefully by using, um, local people, local members of the community, um, uh, they had a kind of a more trusting relationship in that sense. Uh, but again, we can't remove all bias. Community members know that these people work for a conservation organization that works with carnivores. So they could still probably know that, hey, they want to know a certain answer. Or they might be, you know, it's illegal to kill carnivores. So if we start asking a question about um, killing carnivores or like if if they would ever do that or anything like that, then they might not want to answer that question because it's essentially it could be incriminating them even though we don't collect any personal information about that. Um, and we tell them that, but it's something that you always have to kind of deal with. Um, I'm no expert in how to develop surveys. Um, 
they are complex and um you just kind of have to do the best you can i feel like in those situations and, and learn so lucky to have you know committee members that um that have had a lot of experience with surveys and kind of lend their experience on that one so so you've now been in africa working off and on with cheetah conservation big cat conservation carnivore conservation these human carnivore conflicts for four years five years and it seems like you have a pretty positive outlook for where the direction things are heading in africa yet meanwhile when we look today over the last one year two years how especially uh mountain lions pumas are viewed in the u.s but really carnivores in general here what are takeaways from africa that you'd want to apply locally? That's a great question. One thing I've always noticed about the U.S., um, in general, the U.S., probably North America in general, um, is that we don't view our carnivores as something that is exciting to see. Um, a, a lot of people go like, hey, let's go on a safari to Africa. We want to see the lions. We want to see leopards. We want to see cheetahs. We want to see these cool animals, right? And we kind of forget that we have some of these amazing animals kind of in our own backyard. And instead of thinking, instead of being excited to see them, a lot of our news organizations, a lot of publicity that we get is only the negative side. You know, when someone gets attacked by one or when um, one is wandering through a neighborhood and people are scared that it's going to attack their dogs or their kids, or and, which is a fair, fair uh, concern in a lot of cases. Um, but we don't see a lot of the positive um, the positives that come with like wildlife tourism, the cool, like just amazing experience that you get when you get to sit with a lion, right? You know, people don't get to do that here in the U.S. So I think that's something that it would be really cool to see. We kind of to have a kind of a growth of a almost a tourism market um, where you might be able to go track or you might be able to learn um, about kind of these carnivores. We see it a little bit in Yellowstone. A lot of people, you can go there. Um, to the Lamar Valley, you'll see people lined up to try to get a few glimpses of wolves and stuff, um, grizzly bears. So you kind of get, you start to get a little bit of that. Um, but kind of as soon as you leave Yellowstone, it, it you know, you kind of lose that, that really fun, fun aspect of that. So it's something that I would, I would hope to bring, bring to the U.S. a bit more, um, that tourism, that positive and that just learning to be really excited that they are here. Cool to see. So are there any big societal differences between here and where you were in Africa that allow for there to be less fear of carnivores or was there a similar level there? They just have learned to live with it. Yeah. Societal levels of fear. That would be an interesting question. I don't know if I could answer that one on um, literally how, how scared that uh, compare those. There are societal differences that make conservation in uh, the Maasai Mara, especially very different. Uh, I mean, so the Maasai culture never hunted, um, wildlife in general. So that was not part of their culture. They didn't eat wildlife. That wasn't something The one of the only things that I'm aware of, I'm not an expert in Maasai culture. So there's probably maybe many more. Um, one of the things that I'm, I'm aware of is that, you know, when men grew up, they had to go hunt a lion and you might still see that in some areas. Um, but in general, most of that has actually kind of disappeared already. So that's the only thing I'm aware of as far as hunting is concerned in that area. Whereas back here in the U.S., we see a lot more of a hunting culture. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, 
it does change the dynamics. And I believe it probably changes how animals behave. So one of the reasons that we probably don't have tourism for like pumas in the US, they're hard to find. And maybe that's partially because we prosecute them or persecute them all the time, you know, whether people are hunting them or chasing them away or something. And the Mara, you know, you can have a car. They they know people aren't going to hurt them. So you can just kind of drive around next to them and sit with them, you know, 10 feet away and, and just enjoy being there with them. Um, so I do think that maybe hunting or how we treat the animals, not necessarily hunting in itself, uh, does have an effect on how those animals behave around us and therefore how we can kind of appreciate their presence or not. You know, it's kind of a changes that. So, it's, so with a lot of these large issues we've been discussing, you're wrapping your research up within the next year, hopefully within the next few months. And uh, so if you were approached with the opportunity to take this further, to take this to the next step, what would be the area that you'd want to focus on the most if you had the opportunity to do so? I think the biggest thing right now is really trying to understand how uh, non-lethal methods uh, can help deter carnivores from attacking livestock. That's the carnivore side. So if we're going to continue learning about carnivore behavior, how can we uh, use their behavior in order to decrease livestock losses? That's a really big issue around the world, one of the biggest zones of conflict. But there's also a human side, as usual. trying to understand how we can change the narrative of our of conservation and not trying to be, hey, we're against hunting or, hey, we're against this, we're against that. But how can we kind of work with people and kind of understand that we, we can have kind of all these things? How can we support the people in a community? What do they need um, in order to kind of protect carnivores as well? Um, these are really difficult situations and you go anywhere in the world you can go a hundred miles away from one spot and the, the actions that you need to take in order to have a successful like program in order to help the people and carnivores in that area are going to be completely different. It, it's, it's, it's one of those things you kind of have to be really, really uh, strategic with and, and learn as you go. Um, yeah. So what are the non-lethal uh, options currently that are being used with a lot of carnivores. Are there many, or is it mostly a lethal option right now? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of non-lethal options that are uh, vary in the how we uh, the evidence shows that they work or not. Uh, so the most common ones are what we call like fox lights or line lights, essentially just a motion a motion sensor outside your uh, outside wherever you're keeping cattle or sheep or goats. Um, and the idea is that when something walks by, um, it turns on and scares them away. Or maybe it flashes all night long and, a, you know, a cat um, or a cat or a wolf or something doesn't like those. So they they tend to stay away and they, uh, they don't kill as many livestock. Um, that has shown to work in a lot of, in some cases, um, it also has shown to kind of, uh, the carnivores get used to it and they, uh, so there's a kind of a habituation period where after a certain amount of time, it no longer works as well. Um, there's another one that has a lot of uh, uh, evidence coming out um, through our lab, kind of our coexistence lab right now called Flaggery. So literally just putting flags up on a fence every like six inches down a fence and it's something moving. Something about it, um, a lot of carnivores don't like that. They'll kind of stay away from it. It's it's something 
foreign to them. Um, we, we see kind of mixed reactions with that between um, it working with wolves here in Wisconsin quite a bit, not working quite as well with like pumas and black bears uh, in Colorado. So it's it's one of those things that, again, doesn't not everything works everywhere. Um, a big one around the world is something called livestock guarding dogs, where you place a dog with your herd of, of livestock. Um, and these are specialized breeds of dogs. They're big. Um, that actually bond with the livestock. So they're with them all day, all night. They sleep with them. They're with them in the field. They're with them when they go out. And the idea is that these dogs uh, find and chase away carnivores when they see them so that the carnivores don't uh, don't attack the livestock. And we see a lot of good evidence with that one from the people's point of view. So what I mean by that is we go interview people that have livestock guarding dogs and we ask them, are they satisfied with it or have you lost less livestock? And a lot of the evidence suggests that they almost always say, yes, they're happy with it, that they lose less livestock. But we don't actually know what the effect of those is are either. So that's actually part of my research with domestic animals. Um, I do with livestock guarding dogs is that we were very few studies have actually understood how carnivores behave to livestock guarding dogs. So this notion that livestock guarding dogs chase away carnivores was never tested. They were just kind of thrown in and just thought that it was going to happen, um, which is really something really important for me because you understand that if we don't know how carnivores are responding, maybe we're just chasing them away. So yeah, so there's no, we're not losing any more livestock, but that's because we just chased all the cheetahs out of the whole area and now there's no more cheetahs left. So it's really important to understand how, you know, how we're affecting those, uh, those carnivores in that area. Um, in order to kind of, in order to make sure that we are, we are doing the minimal amount that we can to um, affect the carnivores, but the most we can do to protect the livestock and people around them. So that was going to be my next question. Sorry to interrupt, but was literally going to be how the behavior of predators is changed if livestock guarding dogs do too much so it sounds like do we not really know right now what that impact is (laughs) no we know very little there's a couple of studies out of uh, the alps in europe that have watched livestock guarding dogs interact with wolves um with very varying results um i think some of them worked as as they thought some of them like like the dogs like went off away from the herd and then the wolves attack it it's all over the place there was not a single like oh this worked out well right this is exactly how it's happening the wolves didn't necessarily all just run away um there's another study that used uh, that used modeled uh distribution of leopards i think in the arabian peninsula somewhere uh, in or and kind of correlated that with farms that had livestock guarding dogs. Um, and we see, we saw that they um, had a like a negative distribution with certain carnivores, but uh, they said they didn't really affect leopards, but they did affect, um, and they negatively affect leopards and they positively affected hyenas. So it was like, I actually seeing more hyenas in this area. So we're, we don't really know exactly how this is happening. Um, and so part of my research is actually, um, simulating interactions between cheetahs and livestock guarding dogs and trying to learn how these how cheetahs are responding uh, to the dogs because livestock guarding dogs are a 
huge recommendation for to reduce the uh, livestock predation by cheetahs. And no one has ever actually studied how cheetahs behave around these dogs. So it's something that is uh, still very new. And we're still trying to learn as much as we can about it. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So you could be seeing almost a correlation then that the leopards were uh, to a certain extent then lowering the concentration of hyenas in that area possibly and that bringing in the livestock guarding dogs removes the leopards but then increases the hyenas and i know that's that hasn't been proven but that'd be your hypothesis of that situation so it's really interesting thinking about kind of how these dogs could have both positive and negative benefits on the livestock exactly yeah um I wouldn't go as far as uh, claiming anything at that <laughs> moment, but it would be a very interesting study to kind of understand that dynamic of of multiple carnivores, um, of how multiple carnivores are responding to dogs in areas. Um, dogs are, uh, we've, dogs in general, seems like cats don't care too much about them. There have been a couple of actually experimental studies that have shown um, very minor reactions uh, by carnivores to to domestic dogs. These are not livestock guarding dogs. They're just your normal um, kind of domestic dogs. Um, and so there's, there could be a, I think there's positive signs that, that dogs could have very minimal impact on, on cats, especially um, the dynamic between wolves and dogs seems is very interesting to me because dogs and wolves are much closer, closer related. So the social aspect starts to come into play on how those are actually going to interact. You have cats and dogs, uh, big cats and dogs it's a little bit less uh, of that natural social interaction um but i don't want to go as far as to say that like you can use dogs in every situation um either even if they work with with um chasing away um big cats in a really you know really minor effect um because dogs could have other cascading effects on the ecosystem that we're not aware of or that we are aware of so, for instance, having uh, like feral dogs and stuff in a in a wild environment, they are known to eat a lot of wild game. They kill a lot of um, uh, a kill, essentially kill whatever they can, um, whatever they can catch. So they essentially start acting like wolves in the packs. Um, so they have plenty of other negative impacts on other animals in in a system. So it's not like a, you would ever suggest just go and put dogs out with them. It needs to be done in a very controlled controlled manner uh, if it's going to work. Um, but we still need to kind of really learn how what the full effects of these dogs are. Yeah. Are you allowed to share any of your general findings with cheetah and livestock guarding dogs? Or do we have to wait four or five months before <laughs> you publish your thesis? I mean, I'll say that we're finding pretty uh, short-term, uh, short-term behavioral changes. So we're talking in... Uh, less than a half an hour um we see we see cheetahs kind of returning to returning to the normal the behaviors they were they were uh using before the interaction with dogs um kind of won't go into more more into that before but um in general it's 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 fairly short term um so it seems like a fairly positive thing in in this context um i think it needs i think it needs some more research research done on that um but we'll you know we'll see how that goes so <laughs> So speaking of more research, I kind of want to transition. More research means, you know, more people in this field growing this field into what it ultimately can be. There's so many areas around it. What advice 
would you want to give a future conservationist that has similar dreams to what you had when you were a kid? I think as a kid, if you're really young, the first thing is to just try to gain experiences with in the field. And it doesn't have to be anything specific. Um, so like I wanted, I ended up working with cheetahs. I didn't start working with cheetahs until my master's degree, essentially. So you don't have to go into the thing that you are going to be super like going to spend the rest of your life on right away. Um, just kind of get your foot in the door, start making those connections, start meeting people, start getting those experiences. Uh, and then once you, once you kind of are kind of moving that moving forward, you kind of have an idea of where you want to go, what you want to do. Um, there's plenty of different paths to do that, whether it's education or whether it's, you know, kind of jumping into the field, working as a field tech and trying to work yourself like kind of up into that sense, into that context. Um, but it's so much depending on, on how you want to see yourself in the field and what, where you want to put yourself into that field. So research is a really interesting point where I'm not in the field as much as I almost would want to be. But it's something I really enjoy because you are kind of at the forefront, learning something new. How can we kind of help with that? Um, the thing I miss about research is that you aren't there to apply it a lot of times. You kind of show it to people. Um, you tell people about it and you hope that they kind of apply it and that helps in that situation. So if you want to be kind of more of an application, maybe you, you know, you start working for an organization, you start doing more field work uh, in the beginning, and then you could you know, potentially run a, a field site or you could run uh, something where you're in the field constantly. Uh, if you want to do full research, kind of take the PhD route if you want, you know, but that is something, it's not for everybody either. And so it's a, my biggest, my biggest thing would be uh, just follow the, follow the passion and take the opportunities that, that seem, seem like they kind of fit what you want to do. So what's a struggle then that you faced as you came up in this field that you'd want to give advice to future conservationists on, whether it's to try a different method or something you wish you knew? I think a lot of my struggles have been uh, kind of mental on on where, where I see myself and where I fit into the conservation field. Uh, and personally, it's between the research side and the application side. So I always struggle with trying to figure out where the right balance of those two are. Um, and it's something that I probably will struggle with the rest of my life, <laughs> kind of going back and forth with. So it's not something that I'm kind of just assuming is going to, going to go away. Um, what I've liked about it is that I've, I've taken opportunities to work in the field and kind of taken opportunities where I'm sitting at home doing the research side of it uh, a bit more often. So I've kind of had both of those experiences. And I think the more you kind of, um, just take different experiences and have have different outcomes, the more you're going to kind of learn about yourself and kind of where you want to be in the future. So it's just, I think the diversity of experiences over time can kind of help you narrow that down. So on that note of kind of needing to make those decisions of where we end up in this field, how we apply ourselves, what area of conservation do you want to see grow the most, or do you think needs our attention the most going into the future? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing for me is uh, an interdisciplinary approach. So we see this um, kind of working through conservation now. It's it's definitely going this direction. A lot of um, conservation in the past was really just focused on either people or really just focused on animals, or you know, kind of kind of one aspect or the other. Um, and I don't think any conservation is ever as simple as 
as as one solution or one problem. So I think we need to approach conservation from from interdisciplinary ideas uh, from as many as possible, um, whether it's environmental, social, cultural, economic. You know, there's all these different different perspectives that we need to have. And I think the one way that we're going to be successful in protecting biodiversity and species in general, but also really helping and, and uh, allowing people's livelihoods to be to be better off and to keep increasing people's livelihoods um, is is through an interdisciplinary approach where we, we really try to balance all of these um, um, things together. And it's, it's not an easy thing to do, obviously, but it's something that I think is more important than um, than just taking a kind of one step at an approach. Yeah. So then what concerns you the most about the future of conservation? There's a lot of things. That, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of challenges. Um, concerns is is something that um, I think a lot of it for me is trying to get the narrative to a point where people don't think that we're just there to essentially like tell them what to do because we want to save something. And I think that conservation, I always have that concern with conservation. When you come in and say like, hey, we're here to protect X, you can't do Y. It's It has a stigma to it around the world where it's just it. people do not respond well to that. And so when we talk about like, conservationists like just going into a new place imagine doing this in the u.s going into a uh, a place where wolves or pumas might currently exist and be like okay we're going to walk in and create a new conservation organization the stigma around conservation sometimes um, would automatically have negative connotations and like put a lot of a lot of challenges in your way just because of what they think of people what people think conservation is and I think that concerns me. I think we need to have a we need to update our our terminology and our conversation about how how conservation is perceived and how we talk about it, so that we're more inclusive to to people that um, might not have the same goals that we do. Um, so we can kind of mesh those together. Definitely, that's actually a pretty great place to end because the title of this podcast, "The Missing Stone," is pretty much that exact point. The idea that it sometimes feels like you're on one side of a stream and everyone else is on the other. And if the, you could just put a stone in the middle, which is kind of conservation communication or education, mm -hmm. uh, you could help people go from one side to the other and actually be able to communicate and foster relationships and grow this field. So that's exactly. a great yep. place to end. Thank you so much for your time, Brian. I really appreciate it. And uh, any final notes you'd want to say to the audience? No, I don't know. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a good time. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we learned something new. <laughs> hopefully. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how educated my uh, listeners are going to end up being. <laughs> <laughs> they could be giving me notes for all I know. <laughs> I expect them to. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Have a great day. Oh, yeah. Thank you very much. Bye.